0: Before we go any further, can I just say we have to acknowledge the audio tape that is, in fact, now turning out to be pretty important for the prosecution of Donald Trump blowing a gasket. Am I right, Susan, that he was blowing a gasket about your story?
1: <laughs> you know, I that is, according to CNN, that is that is the reporting. And I, I was just, like, screaming the other day when I saw this news story. This was a story in the summer of 2021, doing the reporting for the book The Divider, and we did this reporting about General Milley and his concerns that Trump would take the country to war with Iran in the, the tumultuous final days of the Trump presidency. And Trump apparently decided he was going to weaponize a, a classified document that he had kept with him. And it's all on tape. What an incredible—
2: I think it's amazing. <laughs> I mean, you may have played a huge part in the potential conviction of <laughs> Donald Trump. Well, by, we're getting by just doing—but look at this. Also, let's just celebrate real reporting. I mean, you did the reporting. You got this amazing story about how they did not trust the president of the United States not to start a war in order to try to stay in office— and you get the story, and he's so irate to read it, which is also nice for The New Yorker, shows. <laughs> he was told someone that I've talked to that, oh, nobody reads The New Yorker. Apparently, the, the former president of the United States actually does read The Although, New Yorker. Although I
1: did get some messages <laughs> from people saying that they just were having a hard time visualizing Donald Trump sitting down and being like, okay, I'm going to read this story in The New Yorker now.
2: <laughs> well, someone must have told him that. But he actually told me once, oh, it's my favorite publication. <laughs> well, of course and, he did. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I think the net effect, Susan, may be that you, you may end up with a nickname from him, but I think the, A Grateful Nation thanks
2: you. <laughs> Truly.
1: <laughs> Welcome to The Political Scene, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Susan Glasser, and I'm joined by my colleagues Evan Osnos and Jane Mayer. Hey, guys. Hey, Susan. Hey, guys. I want to try something I don't think we've ever done on the political scene before. I'm going to start with a poem from William Butler Yeats. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction— while the worst are full of passionate intensity. In many ways, this poem has been sort of the anthem, right, of uh, Trump and post-Trump era, Washington, uh, a symbol of our incredible dysfunction. I was thinking about this poem, of course, because this week it seemed, at least for just a moment, like the center did hold in American politics. Over the weekend, Joe Biden and the House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, came up with a deal, a long-awaited deal, to raise the debt ceiling. On Wednesday, the House came in with a huge bipartisan vote to support the deal. 311 members coming together. Late Thursday night, the Senate followed suit. While it's great for the global economy that lawmakers reached a deal, let's not kid ourselves. Our leaders, once again, brought us to the brink of financial catastrophe. But let's talk about that 311 votes. Isn't it possible that this could be the template for moving forward in Washington? Or is it just a brief interruption, a mere blip in the middle of our fractured and rage-filled politics? Jane, is it even possible to have a win-win outcome in this very zero-sum age in our politics? Is it possible that both Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy, that Democrats and Republicans were actually the winners in the outcome of this compromise this week?
2: I mean, I think that what we saw was that both sides agreed that there was something more important than their personal partisan extreme interests that they would give in because the thing that's more important is the national interest and the global interest of not blowing up the economy. And so I think it's a win-win for rationality, maybe. But the fact that we came this close, I really feel that there's not been enough attention there's a lot of attention to the details of the agreement. Excuse me, I've got Washington's pollen special here. But there's just not enough attention to how we got into this and to how extreme this situation is. I mean, this is, you know, this is basically taking the ordinary mechanics of government, the funding of government programs that have already been authorized and appropriated by Congress, it's the funding of those programs and taking those mechanics and turning them into a doomsday machine by a faction, an extreme faction within the Republican Party that is basically kind of becoming a terrorist faction. And we need to, I think, focus more on that and the idea that— that we've gone along with this without calling them out more, I think, is is one thing where I would fault Biden after. Despite all of this, I think we've got to shine more light on the situation at hand here, which has really been something that's grown out of, excuse me, the Tea Party. But now it's metastasized into the Freedom Caucus in the House and a kind of politics that will basically take the world hostage if it needs to and gladly. Well, so – Kevin, let's talk about the deal itself because
1: I think some of the questions that Jane poses are kind of answered in looking at who actually was the winner, right? And every, everybody loves a winner right now. The coverage is, you know, Kevin McCarthy hailing his historic deal. Joe Biden claiming this is a, you know, a template for bipartisan compromise. What I was interested in, in in talking with folks over the last few days in Washington, though, is that behind the scenes, there is a pretty strong sense from Democrats that perhaps they got the upper hand in this very regrettable situation, that in the end, Kevin McCarthy actually blinked and settled for a bad deal. Uh, The columnist, Ezra Klein, said it was like threatening to blow up a bank with a bomb and then settling for $150 in a commemorative mug. Do you? <laughs> what is your take on it?
0: Yeah, you know, you have to remember where the stakes were at the outset of this. I mean, Joe Biden was sort of staring down the barrel of a Republican Party that was willing to blow up the economy. I mean, it was sort of the first big test of, let's face it, a relatively unpopular president facing divided government. They'd had this process of establishing Kevin McCarthy as speaker. He was very weak. It wasn't clear if he could control his own caucus. And then they went into this process of being very quiet about it. I mean, Biden was getting some flack from Democrats who were saying, why isn't he talking about what they're doing? He was getting a lot of, he was sort of getting beaten up by McCarthy in the press, who was insulting him and saying, he refuses to meet with me. But it was this kind of quietest approach, basically, saying, hold on, I'm going to push this thing a little closer. Washington needs a deadline. Eventually, they get in there. They begin making the deal, meaning, in effect, the Democrats... Ultimately, what Democrats did is they gave up some short term issues, some short term priorities in order to protect the long term gains that they have established when they had control of Congress. And those short-term losses are not insignificant. I mean, progressives will tell you that losing money for the IRS or ending the moratorium on student debt repayment is significant, or most importantly, perhaps the pipeline that will be a setback for efforts to control climate change. The Joe Manchin provision in this. the, The Joe Manchin pipeline, exactly. But the bottom line, Susan, I think this is where it nets out is that Democrats were able to prevent against the worst consequences. And part of it was this key piece of the strategy, which is that after they got the deal, you did not hear Biden go out there and start bragging about it. Because as he said at one point to reporters, if I go out and start thumping my chest and doing what you all want me to do, which is to message this and communicate better and yada, 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 that's not going to help me pass it in Congress. And that would have activated all of the antibodies on the other side. And that was a key piece of getting it done.
1: Well, it's funny that you say that there's a congressman from California, Brad Sherman. Uh, As soon as the vote went over the top in the House, he said to reporters, oh, great, now we're allowed to (laughs) say it. Uh, The Republicans (laughs) got rolled. Uh, Jane, this does bring up the question, though, of how much any of this really matters. Nobody except for Kevin McCarthy and maybe not even him looking in the mirror thinks this is some kind of, you know, massive, game-changing historic deal. So part of the question here is, is it actually a template for governing or is it just almost a one off, something that, look, of course, the House and the Senate, even in their dysfunction, they have to do this. It's the basic requirement of making sure that we don't have a national catastrophe. And that's hardly, you know, a template for governing. I'm curious what you think. Does it is there the glimmer of a way forward here or is it just doing the minimum?
2: I mean, are we going to see other deals where the moderates succeed and the extremes are sidelined? I think you've seen there's a recipe for it here now. I think that politically it matters. It matters that it's made Biden, who's been you know, the recipient of much criticism and questioning about what his competency. Now people are saying, oh, it's not that he's, you know, too old. Maybe he's wise. Maybe he knows how to cut a deal. Maybe this is, you know, this was a sort of a savvy technique, as we've just been talking about. It's definitely burnished his reputation. I think it's made McCarthy look Uh, Like, he maybe has control of his caucus, even the most unruly parts of it. Um, And and so there may be a way forward here. You know, it certainly helped the country's image and also its credit rating. Face it, if this had gone the other direction, it would have been catastrophic. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's shown a certain amount of a way forward. I think if the Republicans feel they were rolled, though, they may not allow the Democrats to repeat this process.
1: Well, and again, I want to also just poke a little bit at this Assumption that we all have that it's shown that McCarthy is in control of his caucus. Because, you know, the seeds of his potential undoing, of course, exist in the very deal that he made to get the job in the first place, which is to say it takes only now a single member of his own conference to call for a motion to vacate, and he could be facing, you know, essentially what amounts to an American version of a a no confidence vote on the floor of the House. Some of the disaffected House Freedom Caucus members have said that they may actually pursue that next week when they come back. Evan, how likely do you think that is? And, you know, how significant do you think it is? One one notable fact about that overwhelming bipartisan vote in the House was that it was actually more Democrats in the end who yeah. voted for the deal than Republicans. And, you know, that's one of those kind of blinking red indicator lights that McCarthy doesn't necessarily have full control. Uh, he was actually taunted by the House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries about that in a floor speech at the end of the debate, he said.
0: It appears that you may have lost control of the floor of the House of Representatives.
1: Earlier today, 29 House Republicans voted to default on our nation's debt and against an agreement that you negotiated. Big deal or not
0: yeah it is a big deal i mean it's funny it's worth noting by the way that it's become a pejorative to say that you relied on democrats in order to pass your bill but <laughs> in his world in kevin mccarthy's own calculus of course that is True. I mean, he's a sort of a reluctant compromiser. I think he would, you know, dispute that characterization on the at least the compromiser part. I agree. I think it's very likely that there's going to be an effort on the part of Republicans to challenge his leadership. He probably will survive, but we'll have to see. I think the way this I come down on this ultimately, Susan, is that this result is a bit like we're standing in front of a house that survived a forest fire. And we're thinking, oh, isn't that great? The house survived. But the forest fire is the problem. And the forest <laughs> fire is what remains here. That's the underlying issue in politics. And what I mean, forest fire, I mean, it's the extremity, the fact that there is so little common ground, that the center is so slender. I mean, this the data proves it. If you go back, you know, 50 years, there was just much more of this.
2: I totally agree with you, Evan, that I really feel that, again, it's great that catastrophe was averted, okay? We we can celebrate that but let's look at what created this catastrophe that the forest as you you put it is and and i and i while it's wonderful that biden was by not speaking able to get a deal but i think it's very worrisome that the messaging was missing from this white house framing this matter as something where extremists and extreme and nihilist faction tried to take the entire world's economy hostage. And not only did they try to take it hostage, but look at the falsehood of their arguments. They're saying they're doing this because they're fiscal conservatives. Are they really? They raised the debt ceiling three times under Trump, and the deficit was enlarged by $7.8 trillion under Trump, and there was no complaint. This is about politics. This is not about principle. And it's about a political fact that is willing to take the world down with it.
1: But, you know, Jane, it's interesting that you say that because the Democrats I've spoken with are very confident that the politics ultimately are going to redound to their benefit for exactly the reason that you just pointed out. Hopefully so. And, you know, I talked with a Democratic strategist yesterday who— You know, I raised exactly the point that you're raising. And you know what he said to me? He said, you know what, Susan? That's what we're going to be spending millions and millions of dollars telling the world about from now on. Joe Biden was silent about it, as Evan pointed out, in his sort of Biden, I've been here for decades in the Capitol, I know how to make a deal mode, because you don't spike the football until you get the votes. And the argument of Democrats is this is perfect for Biden 2024, right? That this Mm -hmm. is... A case study, it's example number one of why the MAGA extremists are too extreme, and that this is a group of people that were willing even to take our country into financial catastrophe in order to pursue self serving and extreme ends that aren't even supported by a majority of their own conference. And it takes us right to this bigger question of what is the center in American politics right now, and is there actually a political interest? In both sides, in shouting about the extremes, the the passionate intensity of the minority right now seems to be sort of governing the surround sound of our politics, which is why this seems like such an outlier moment, right? You know, that it actually could be good for Joe Biden to have these extreme opponents as he looks towards what could possibly get him reelected in 2024. Evan, How do you see this playing into actually the presidential campaign? I noted that Donald Trump, who had earlier said they should hold out, was notably silent when the deal actually came together. Do you think that we're going to hear more about this from the Biden people because it's a good example of the extreme opponents he's facing?
0: What you're going to hear is not an abstraction. It is not even a hard thing for us to visualize. It is this contrast between, let's call it, competence versus chaos. I mean, that is honestly how they're going to frame it. But I also think it's this question of reasonableness versus truly extreme behavior and I, I you know I want to mention that of course we saw just recently the sentencing of a genuine extremist a certifiable extremist Stuart Rhodes the leader of the oath keepers who was sentenced to prison for 18 years you know of course Republicans today would like to say this guy is in another universe from us but that's nonsense he's the end of a spectrum of behavior that goes from one kind of extremism into uh, the kind of extremism that we see playing out in politics and the truth is that that idea That what the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys, what those guys all represented was the idea of delegitimizing government and governance to the point that you actually end up taking up arms, which is, of course, what they did and and what they've been sentenced for. But I don't think it's going to be a hard case to make. And it's, in fact, one of the only things that Americans feel Positive, frankly, about Joe Biden is that the guy is just not an extremist. Even that's the knock on him if you're a progressive, but that's the case they'll make.
1: The political scene will be back in just a moment.
0: I'm glad you brought
1: up this Oath Keepers case and, you know, the broader challenge and pressure of this movement of violent white supremacy in our country, the willingness of a faction to attack our democracy itself. I, you could look at the court case in, a, in, in a different ways. You can say, well, it is a victory for democracy, but it's also a reminder of the anger and the hate that is literally coursing through this country and, you know, I think there are real questions, Jane, about how long we can even sustain such a fractured and rage-filled politics. It's, it's almost like, right, it's, it's, we exist in a moment where we can get 311 votes in the House to raise the debt ceiling, but also in a world in which the former president and front runner for the Republican nomination has followers and he himself is willing to attack the, the foundations of our democracy itself.
2: First of all, I think there's nothing more important to the you know protecting democracy than the rule of law and a functioning justice department that can hold people accountable who are threatening the the very processes of our government. So it's it's a really good news day when Stuart Rhodes gets a What's really quite an, a large sentence—eighteen years. I mean, this is a Yale law graduate who knew, who knows the law, and and the he, the book was thrown at him, and and the judge made that clear. But I think while these cases are very important, what to me is um, really. I think, quite dangerous is what we hear coming from both DeSantis and Trump about these cases and about January 6th. I mean, what we've seen happen since that event, there was a kind of a shaming and a shock right after it. And even Trump was was shaken by it. He is now embracing it. And he is now saying that if he's elected president again, and DeSantis has said the same, they will pardon the January 6th um, insurrectionists, um, they are, by doing that, saying the rule of law is, doesn't matter to them and that um, they are basically embracing violence. Um, And so I think the message there is watch that closely um, because that is the they are the front runners in the Republican Party, and that is what they're saying right now.
1: Well, it's certainly revealing about where they think the political uh, momentum and the political advantage inside the Republican Party today is, right? That they see that as advantageous to themselves to advocate something like that. Evan, this incredible tide of apocalyptic rhetoric. It's so at odds with the tone of responsible governance and bipartisan deal-making we saw this week. You know, how do you you reconcile those incredibly contradictory things? Uh, You know, the Republicans have spent the last several years calling Joe Biden a senile old man who can hardly, you know, get up in the morning and, uh, you know, is sort of raving that they're— he's leading the country to the brink of destruction— that we are on the edge of a new civil war, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene even advocates a divorce, a national divorce, as a result of what she calls the extremism of the Democratic Party. So, was this just like you know, like a television show that had like a temporary interlude, <laughs> and now we're going to go hmm. back to our apocalyptic programming?
0: I'm afraid that's exactly what's going to happen. I think that's the undertone. Look, there are sort of two different channels essentially going simultaneously. One channel is the actual work of politics, which you saw – unfold over the course of the last couple of weeks, which is, in the end, technical and kind of unglamorous and happens largely behind closed doors, and it has to do with horse trading about one program or another. And then there's this other thing, which is a performative, inflamed, and inflammatory world, which, you know, there was a good column in The Times uh, just the other day by Tom Edsel, which he called The Politics of Delusion, which is really about the ways in which people dehumanize one another, obviously mostly on the right towards the left, about how they describe their opponents as really, you know, mortal enemies. And the best, I, I will to tell you, the best thing I've read about this topic is the historian Joanne Freeman at Yale, who wrote this book about the Congress before the Civil War. And I i remember asking her, I said, you know, how is it that you had this process where these two worlds kind of merged, where you had the, the lawmaking world and the violence-making world? And she said, ultimately, it was about a period when the language of dominance, of aggression, and dominance is the key word, dominance rather than compromise, came to prevail because what happens at that point is it's like a runaway fire where other people then fall in line and begin to take up that language. And that's what worries me about the medium in the long term.
1: There are so many issues in this country. It's not just something as no-brainer as raising the debt ceiling. There, there, There are many issues in this country that appear to be polarizing because of the inability of our political system to do anything about them. But yet, in fact, there are large majorities of Americans who who support sensible uh, middle road approaches to them. I'm thinking of things like gun control, abortion access, even in many red states as well as blue states. uh, There are... Reforms. There are policies that large numbers of Americans across political parties could agree upon. Uh, and yet, Jane, there's no sense that
2: we're going to be moving toward consensus on any of those issues. I think you've got – I mean – among other things, and again, I agree that the Tom Edsel column was, was terrific. It's kind of a compilation of the the some of the smartest thinkers about politics t- talking about polarization and what's driving it. And one of the things that comes to the forefront in it is that extreme polarization um, and this kind of catastrophe rhetoric and the idea of that we're at an apocalyptic moment where America might die and the other side are the enemy, um, all of that drives... And motivates people to vote. So you've got you. It's actually a very useful tool to have this kind of rhetoric for the political operatives. Um, they want to get their people out to vote. Um, and so there's a there's a great sort of self interested motivation in the parties to torque this up. Um, and 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 unfortunately, there's not much of a motivation to try to calm people down and and look at what they have in common. It's almost becoming religious convictions rather than political parties. Um, it's a, it's about their affinity group and it's their team and the other side are, are, are lesser beings. And all of this is definitely, we've seen it throughout history, prelude to the kind of things that lead to civil wars and to lead to violence. So, um, But there's not a really a great motivation for people to try to bring people together. Um, that may be what Biden's going to try to do during the during the election Um, to, you know, but we know that first there are the primaries where basically um, stirring up people's partisan furies is what brings out the voters. And then and then there's a short period for the general election when supposedly everybody's supposed to come together again.
1: Well, and of course, uh, it, it looks right now that actually that was Biden in 2020, but that Biden in 2024 is actually going to be running against MAGA extremists and painting the other party as so out of control that they can't be allowed to have the powers of the governing. But to this this question of are we hurtling towards something, you know, irreconcilable, Evan, you've done a lot of reporting over the last few years on the question of income inequality in America and how much that's fueling this kind of rage-fueled politics. I have to tell you, there was a little bit of rage that I had when reading your most recent story for The New Yorker about how the super rich are hiring full on rock stars for private events, even their kids bar mitzvah, you know, spending six figures flying people on private jets. You know, what do you come away from this reporting thinking about, you know, what it tells us about the state of the country? I mean, you know, uh, isn't some rage justified?
0: Well, you know, in some ways, um, I feel like what does a political reporter in 2023 do when they can't possibly imagine doing another story about Washington? They go and they do a story about, you know, musicians doing private gigs. Because for me, actually, that really does get to questions of power and money. I mean, this is a sort of one in a series of pieces that are basically ways of writing about the fact that you have a period in American life. Obviously, we know that it's one of dramatic, really radical inequality. But I I think you have to make it vivid and vibrant to capture how separate and non-intersecting the worlds are of lived experience in America, that you can be living in really impoverished places that are, in some cases, predominantly black or predominantly white. And then you can also be living in a world in the United States that is now of a a level of experience of of just simply how you fill your day and how you spend your money that is almost unrecognizable to other people. And, I think you cannot understand the divisions in America without really making a vivid case for how separate those worlds are.
2: I, I totally agree. I mean, I really am glad that that Evan has become our Thorsten Veblen at the, at the, <laughs> the New Yorker, chronicling the you know conspicuous consumption of the super rich, because basically the press generally focuses on um, the victims of uh, you know economic victims and which whose stories are of course worth. Spending a lot of time telling, I mean, the people at the bottom are being ground down into a state of misery. That's that's you know beginning to feel like the Gilded Age all over again. It's you know and and um, but to see the heedlessness of the super rich and the effort to try to one up those who are just maybe a million dollars less rich than they are, you really you it's it's a world apart. And it makes me think that the one thing that was wrong about the um, Edsel piece, which talks about political delusions, is that this is not so delusional. Really, this anger, as as you were saying, really, Susan, there are, there are real causes of anger. This kind of economic inequality and the and the the stunting of social mobility, which is sort of the the kind of the ethic of America that if you work hard. And play by the rules, you'll get ahead, um, and maybe do better than the previous generation. It's if you look at the statistics, it's it's kind of coming to a halt. There's very little social mobility, and instead, what you're seeing is the growing amount of um, kind of almost aristocratic wealth being passed on from generation to generation at the top level of the economy. Um, and so there, there's a feeling that, of course, this creates anger. Um, among so many people who are so left out of this economy.
1: Well, suffice it to say that none of the three of us will be hiring Bruce Springsteen to sing at any of our family weddings anytime <laughs> He's the soon. one who won't do I the know, privates. He's the holdout,
2: you know, and, and good, good for him, really. He, he's, not, he's not for sale, except that you do have to pay a lot for the tickets at his concerts these days.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I know I'm often accused of being uh, the House pessimist uh, here, but let's just say that uh, whatever else it was, it was probably Probably a good week for America and the world that we didn't
2: careen Susan, over the cliff. I can't of, believe it. A positive note. <laughs> oh, we've note.
0: gotten to you. We've, I'm, we've trying, gotten I'm trying, I'm
1: trying. This has been The Political Scene, and I'm Susan Glasser. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Catherine Winter. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton Brown. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the weekend.